It's great to be amongst you. It's always wonderful to come here and know that the Lord is here and the Lord is blessing you and he is filling you with the joy that comes only from him. And that's great to be part of just once or twice a year maybe, but it's great to be here amongst you. So thank you that uh, I can come and be with you. Please keep that Bible passage open in front of you. It is a long passage. You'll be glad to know I'm not reading right the way through the passage and going through verse by verse. Otherwise, I would have told you to bring your sleeping bags because there's so much in here, isn't there? So much great truth that you can dive into and I can't cover that in half an hour or so. So over to your house groups where you can delve much deeper into these things as you go through them. Uh, So please keep your Bible open. You'll find it a lot easier to follow what I'm saying if you have it open in front of you. Let me just pray, please. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for what you have given us. You've given us eternal life. Father, we thank you for salvation. We thank you that the words of eternal life come only from you. So we thank you that we can concentrate on these words this morning. We pray, Father, that you would help us to open our eyes, open our ears, to hear and to see what you would have us learn, what you would have us apply to our lives, even this morning. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I read recently that great white sharks would suffocate without forward motion or a strong current of water flowing over their gills. So they're continually moving, searching, looking, And aren't we similar to that in that we're continually on the move, searching, restless, looking for something that will fulfill us, looking for satisfaction and contentment. We're always longing to find that eureka moment when we can say, the search is over, we've made it. When presenting an award at the Golden Globes in 2019, the actor Jim Carrey, a.k.a. The Mask, Ace Ventura, Pet Detective, and The Grinch, said, I am Jim Carrey, two-time Golden Globe winner. And when I go to sleep, I dream about being a three-time Golden Globe winner, because then I'd be enough. It would finally be true, and I could stop this terrible search for something I know won't ultimately fulfill me. The search will go on. So I want to ask you this morning, how's your search going? Are you any closer to finding what you're really looking for? Last week you were looking in chapter 3, listening to John the Baptist, saying there's joy in becoming less, and there's life when Jesus becomes more. Well, we see this worked out today in this passage as this Samaritan woman meets Jesus. At the start of chapter 4, we find one man, a weary Jewish man, thirsty and sitting next to a well. Nothing spectacular, but as we move through our story, a whole town encircles this man in verse 39. And we're told in verse 45 that he then moves on and people throughout the area of Galilee gather around him. Now we're interested. What's he doing? Why is this whole town coming to meet with him. How come this whole area of Galilee wants to be near him? What is he doing? A crowd gathers around him. And a crowd, we know, isn't it? It's magnetic, isn't it? 
We see a crowd forming, and we want to be part of it. We go and join it. We tag along, craning our necks over to see what's happening, not wanting to miss out. What's all the fuss about? Why is everyone stopping to look? As we walk through this chapter this morning, John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wants us to ask, does this man warrant a large crowd? Through John's account, we get a clear line of view into who this is. Um, And we eavesdrop on a conversation. Does this man warrant this unexpected crowd? Does what he's doing and saying warrant my attention? Who is this man? John tells us, of course, that this is the Lord Jesus. John uses two strategies in this story. Notice the geographical placement. John deliberately places people and tells us of their movements. At the start of the chapter, Jesus enters the scene and he sits by a well and that's where he stays. He doesn't move. The disciples leave Jesus at the well to go into the town in search of food. A woman comes to the well and sees Jesus. The disciples return. The woman moves away. She goes into the town. Jesus just sits there and everything happens around him. See, another strategy John often uses in his gospel, he introduces characters who misunderstand Jesus. You've seen, for example, Nicodemus in chapter 3. And their misunderstanding is an opportunity for John to explain and for us to see the person coming, to see that person, the person that John introduces, coming to an understanding. And as we see that, we can come to an understanding of who this man is too, as we listen to their conversations. So, there are three things that are misunderstood in this account. Three misunderstandings. The first misunderstanding we're going to look at is the wrong well. The wrong well in verses 7 to 18. You remember from last week that John the Baptist's followers were disgruntled that Jesus was baptizing people and gaining more disciples than John. And at the beginning of chapter 4, the Pharisees, the religious people, are opposing Jesus. And so we find him leaving that area of Judea and he heads north to Galilee with his disciples. The route he's taking leads him straight through Samaria and he arrives in the town of Sychar. He's tired from the journey and the full heat of the day. It's about noon. So he finds a place to take the weight off his feet and he sits down by a well to rest. In verse 7, enter a woman to draw some water from the well. She's on her own and it's at noon. Both things are not normal. Women would not normally come for water in the heat of day and they wouldn't come on their own. Perhaps this is telling us... Perhaps this is telling us that uh, she's been shunned by her townspeople for the number of relationships that she's been having, uh, which we'll read about later, we'll cover later. Uh, So she comes to the well. Having read chapters 1 to 3, we have insider knowledge about who Jesus is and what he's done. But this woman has no clue who he is. She's totally unaware. To her... He's just a weary Jewish traveler, left alone by his friends who've gone into town to search for food. So the conversation starts. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Seems like a harmless enough request. 
But she replies, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman from Samaria? Jesus is knowingly stepping into a minefield of taboos. Jesus, sorry, John tells us Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. It just didn't happen. Historically, because of a division in Israel, almost a thousand years before Jesus was born, when one uh, nation became two. Religiously, because they worshipped in different temples. And socially, there was no way this conversation should have happened. A Jew was not to speak to a woman on the streets, even his wife. But Jesus carries on the conversation in verse 10. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman responds perhaps with sympathy for this tired man. Perhaps the heats made him unable to think straight. Sir, you have nothing to draw water with. How can you give me water when you don't even have a bucket? What are you saying, sir? But perhaps her reply has a tinge of annoyance too, because she then says, Are you greater than our father Jacob? Offering to give me living water, you can't be saying that you're greater than Jacob. Our great ancestor who gave us this well is precious to us, sir. And you're inferring that his gift is an insufficient and you're somehow greater than him. How arrogant. You can imagine the woman thinking, now I know why Samaritans don't associate with Jews. <clears throat> Jacob was the father of the woman's people, but Jesus carries on stepping on her toes, affirming the insufficiency of Jacob's gift of this well. When he says, verse 13, everyone who drinks of this water will be, sorry, this water in the well will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus claims that he can give thirst-quenching eternal life. You know, some restaurants offer limitless drinks. You can drink as much as you like. Jesus says here, I will be a self-renewing, eternal, everlasting flow of water, bringing eternal life. Your thirst will be quenched forever. So, of course, the woman says, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Why wouldn't she? At the very least, it'll save her making this trip every now and again to get some, some water, saving her time, saving her energy, coming back to this well. She still doesn't get it. Perhaps she's just humoring this strange Jewish man. But look what happens next. Things suddenly get a whole lot more serious in verse 16. What Jesus says next grabs her attention very quickly. Go call your husband and come here. Where did that come from? Conversation moves from drinks to husbands? Where did that come from? She didn't see that coming. I have no husband, she answered. Jesus tells her he knows. She's had five husbands and she's now in relationship with another man. See the sudden tone change there? He's not talking about H2O and a hole in the ground here. 
he puts his finger on the deeper thirst of this woman. He isn't concerned about her daily visit to the well. He's talking about her deeper thirst. What's she been going to to quench her deeper thirst? Jesus isn't talking about her physical thirst here. This woman's been trying to quench a deeper thirst, but she's been looking to relationships for satisfaction. And she's not alone in seeking ultimate fulfillment in that area, is she? Dating programs, dating apps, exploring relationships that are right for the particular demands of each person. It occupies people's energy and people's thoughts very much today, doesn't it? But the search never stops. For this woman, her hopes have been dashed and it's led to five broken relationships and now she's living with a sixth man in immorality, trying to find the joy, life and fulfillment that are missing. Jesus knows her past experiences and her present sinfulness. He knows where she's been looking to quench her real thirst. Jesus knows all about it. He knows all our ways. She's living in a drought. And the well she's been going to for quenching her thirst are these six men. Jesus knows all about it. Go call your husband. There's the source of her thirst. Not one man, not six men are enough. You're still thirsty and you will thirst again. Now, what if Jesus placed his finger on the area you and I look to to quench our thirst. What would he say to you? Bring me your social network logins. You've got masses of friends and likes, but you're still thirsty, and you will thirst again. Show me your car. You've got the latest electric model, sat-nav, automatic parking, mini fridge, and a smart rear-view mirror. But you're still thirsty, and you will thirst again. Your record of box set watching? Still thirsty? Bring your shoe shopping receipts. Are you keeping up with trends? Have you got the latest 750 pound Gucci trainers? You will be thirsty again. Ask a rich man what would satisfy him, and he'll say, just a little bit more. Still thirsty. What would Jesus say to you? Jesus says, you're going to the wrong well. He takes us to our deepest sense of sin and he puts his finger on it because he knows all about it. He knows this woman's past and her present sinfulness. He knows how you have spent your week, where you have spent your time and your energies and your money. He knows all about it and he says, you're going to the wrong well. Twice in our passage we hear the woman saying, come see a man who told me all I ever did, verses 29 and 39. He knows everything. He has extensive and full knowledge about her, but to this very woman, he offers the gift of eternal life. He knows all about you. He knows all about me, our sins, yet he still says, come and drink of the well that gives thirst-quenching eternal life.
And whenever Jesus says everyone and whoever, he really means everyone and whoever. John 3.16, whoever believes in me, Jesus, should not perish but have eternal life, really means whoever. John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. And verse 14 of our passage, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. Really do mean whoever. So none of us can ever leave, can ever turn away saying, I'm too bad. I'm too bad for Jesus. He doesn't know about me, how bad I am, how far I've sunk, the sins that I've committed. He doesn't know. Yes, he does. He knows all about us. He knows everything you ever did. And amazingly, he still says, I will give you eternal life. Whoever believes in me, whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The who in whoever includes you. And it's at this moment the woman starts to understand who Jesus is. In verse 9, he was a Jew. In verse 19, she sees him as a prophet, someone who tells her something only God could know. She's starting to get it, and she brings up the subject of worship. The Samaritans, she says, verse 20, worship on this mountain, Mount Gerizim, where Samaritans had built their temple in 400 BC, whereas Jews worship in their temple in Jerusalem, about 30 miles away. Another reason why this conversation was unexpected. And here comes the second misunderstanding. Wrong worship. Wrong worship in verses 19 to 26. This woman's been going to the wrong well to quench her thirst, but she's also doing worship wrong. Notice the geographical setting for this conversation. They could have been chatting anywhere, but Jesus is actually sitting at Jacob's well next to the mountain where the Samaritans worshipped. The woman says, in effect, you say you're better than the water in this well and greater than Jacob who gave it to us. Are you now saying that you're greater than this mountain where we worship as well? Verses 21 to 24, Jesus basically says, yes. The woman's concerned about where to worship, the mountain or in Jerusalem. Jesus is concerned about how to worship. Jesus talks here about true worshippers, verse 23, which implies that there are false worshippers. Jesus says twice, true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. This woman worships wrongly in two ways. Wrong worship restricts worship to a certain place. Here, this mountain. But she also worships in a hypocritical way. She does the formal things of religion at this place, but all the while, she's living with a man in immorality, in sinfulness, wrong worship. We've got to be very careful that we aren't guilty of this too. The way we treat this building, any building that we gather together for worship, we come and do the things of worship. We sing songs, we pray, we say amen. But then as soon as we're out of the doors, we too easily follow the ways of the world. 
We cannot be guilty of acting as if God is only between, within these four walls. And the rest of the week, we do whatever we want. God isn't restricted to a building. Jesus says God is spirit. He's everywhere. He's in every room, in every place we spend time. Worshipping in spirit and truth isn't connected to a place, but a person. A person. John chapter 1 tells us that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and he revealed God to us. Jesus has made him known. Look at the movement in this passage again. Jesus sits. The woman comes to him. The disciples come to him. The whole town comes to him. The area of Galilee comes to him. Where's the well that gives eternal life? Where do we meet with God? Where do we worship God? Where's the place of salvation? It's all by coming to the person, Jesus. The full revelation of God is in this man sitting by a well. Worship isn't restricted to a particular building at a specific time of the week. True worship's the way we behave, the way that we live, the way that we talk, the way that we have um, relationships with others. Uh, it isn't restricted to a particular building. The way we lead, it's re- It's included in the way we lead our lives at all times, in all places, flowing from being in relationship with Jesus. True worship's not found in a particular location, but it's found when it's focused on a particular person, on Jesus. That's the place to go. Jesus says salvation is from the Jews, but it's more precise than that. Salvation salvation is from this Jew, Jesus. The woman says in verse 25 that she knows the Messiah, the Christ, will come and help. But here we see the first proclamation in John's gospel from the lips of Jesus himself that he is the promised Messiah, the promised King, the one this woman's been waiting for. Verse 26 says, I, who speak to you, am he. Couldn't be clearer, could it? The penny's dropped. And just look at the woman's excitement as she leaves her water jar and runs off into town to tell everyone she's found the Messiah. So as she goes, the disciples return and they join the woman in misunderstanding. Someone's called them disciples because they're slow to understand. The third misunderstanding is the wrong food. The wrong food, verses 17 and 31 to 38. The disciples come with food and urge Jesus to eat, in verse 31. But Jesus replies, I have food to eat that you do not, do not know about. The disciples think, has someone brought him something to eat? Verse 33, we just walked into town and he had food all the time. Jesus very patiently explains, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. It isn't sandwiches full of healthy green stuff that keep Jesus going. It isn't the drink that gives you wings that's the source of his energy. It's obedience to his Father's will. That's more vital than physical food. So what's he been eating? What's he been doing while the disciples were downtown? 
He has given eternal life and saving knowledge to this woman. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish, to finish his work. So we have to ask ourselves, how important is it to us, to you? What value do you place on obediently taking the good news about Jesus to those around you who are thirsty? Yes, physical food is important. If your dinner's late, your stomach starts to rumble. I hope it hasn't started yet. But does your spiritual stomach rumble if you miss an opportunity to share this life-giving gospel? Search your heart. Look at the mission field, the passage says, around you. It's vital you share because the fields are ripe for harvest. Be like Jesus. Is our country in the state it is because Christians haven't got the appetite to go and tell like Jesus tells this woman. She runs off and tells and the whole town comes. So where are we going wrong? Eat the same food Jesus eats. Do the will of God to tell of Jesus' amazing gift of water springing up for eternal life. The glorious reality of Jesus coming to dwell on earth, his amazing purpose in coming and sitting for a while, his very reason for coming was to tell you the way of salvation, was to bring you and me eternal life. That's why he came. That was his food while he was on earth. Amazingly, this passage echoes through John's gospel into chapter 19. There we find similarities with John 4 which explain how Jesus brings eternal life. In chapter 19, again, it's noon. And there's another crowd encircling Jesus. But this time, it's not around a well. This time, they gather around a cross. This time, he isn't sitting. This time, he's lifted up, nailed to a cross. John takes us there. And again, we listen. And what do we hear as Jesus fights for breath? Jesus says, I am thirsty. To give you and me thirst-quenching eternal life, Jesus had to enter a drought himself that led to his death. He died the death. You and I should have died so he can give you living water. You see that? What do we hear Jesus say in John 4:34? He says, "My food is to finish his work." What do you hear as Jesus' final words before he breathes his last? It is finished. Here's Jesus finishing his work. It's like placing your knife and your fork down at the end of a meal. He's done everything necessary for you to be saved. The food his father gave Jesus to finish is over. It is finished. Turning to the wells of the worlds like this woman with an endless stream of relationships, one after another, not only foolish, but also sinful. The Old Testament prophet Jeremiah brings a message from God to his people who turned their backs on him and gone their own way. He says in Jeremiah 2.13, My people have committed two evils. 
They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Double evil. They firstly turned from God, the true fountain of living water. And secondly, they've built their own wells. They've gone searching in their own wells for water. They hope will quench their thirst, but which don't even hold water. Don't trust in man-made wells, because you'll still be thirsty, and you will thirst again, and you'll remain in a drought that'll lead to your death. Be afraid, be very afraid, if that is you this morning. Jesus says, I am thirsty, and then I am finished. Uh, it is finished. He gives eternal life to whoever believes in him. He's a savior of the world. Look back to John 4:42. All the people from the town now understand what's happening. They don't only believe because the woman has reported to them that she's met Jesus. They say, we know, we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. These people are the whoever's like you and me. If you come to Jesus, not just to Lincoln Baptist Church, not just on a Sunday morning, if you come to Jesus, you come to the Savior of the world, your Savior. Can you say that? That's why, John says, he wrote this gospel down. Chapter 20, uh, chapter 20 verse 31. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Leave the wrong wells of this world. They won't quench your thirst. Come to the well and keep coming to the well that gives living water. The prophet Isaiah writes, You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you are angry with me, your anger turned away, that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and I will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. So how's your search going? Are you looking in the right place? Are you searching in the right way? Where will you look for satisfaction? Come to the only place where God your maker has always meant you to come to quench your thirst for true satisfaction. Your search won't end in any other way. Come and keep coming to Jesus and say, Lord, give me this water so that I, so that I won't get thirsty, so that I might know a well of water springing up in me for eternal life. Drink from the well of salvation and live. Amen. Let me pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word that shows us so clearly the way, clearly the way of salvation. And thank you for these words this morning. Father, be at work in our hearts by your spirit and by the power of, of your spirit, would you change us into the likeness of our Lord Jesus Christ. Show us the way where we can see 
this well springing up within us. Father, draw us close, as we sang earlier. Draw us close so that we can see who you are, so that we can know more and more about you, so that we can understand what this salvation is, so that we can understand the relationship that you have brought us into through our Lord Jesus Christ, through his death on the cross and his resurrection. Father, draw us closer and deeper into you. May we draw from the wells of salvation for eternal life. In Jesus' name, for his sake and his glory alone. Amen. I can invite the musicians up. Peter said to Jesus, where else can we go? You, Jesus, have the words of eternal life. Salvation, hope, joy, fulfillment, and eternal life are found only in Jesus, in Christ alone. And that's what we're going to sing to celebrate this fact.